Hey, I'm Tremika, and welcome to the season one finale of Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin, a podcast dedicated to giving you an in-depth look at innovative strategies within higher education, specifically for higher education executives. To wrap up season one, I have someone extremely special here. I have Dr. Russell Lowry Hart, who's the president of Amarillo College in Texas. Now, many of you know he's done some pretty cool work and nationally recognized for his poverty initiative at Amarillo College. But today, what we're gonna talk about with Dr. Larry Hart is the why. Why did he choose to focus on this work and how he led his entire college to actively change the way that they serve their students. And we're also going to talk about how this national pandemic that we're all facing has evolved some of his work that they're doing at the college. So. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, which it is a good one, you can learn more about what we do at Deep Dives by going to Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin's website. It's www.deepdivestv.com. Now let's dive in with Dr. Russell Lowry Hart. First, I have to say, Dr. Lowry Hart, thank you so, so much. And I have to start with this question. Do you mind if I call you Russell? I prefer it. In fact, when I introduce myself to our students in orientation, I ask them to call me Russell. And I have them put Russell in their phone and I give them my cell phone number. So Russell is my preference. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. I had no idea that you did that. Um, I have to say that this is my very first Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin COVID edition. So if there was any person that I would share this experience with, it would be the man that has been in the trenches more than any other person that I know, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So thank you for um, spending this time with me. And the topic that we talked about, I know me and you have had multiple conversations about what are we going to talk about when we get on Deep Dives? But I really think this one is really good because a lot of people will, as we work across the country, I want to, Tremika, I want to spend time with Russell and learn, you know, a lot about how he built this homeless initiative and how he built. And to me, I think the the fundamental question is always missed because you speak a lot about the how, you know, you have a whole conference for the how. Um, But the piece to me that is missing with the fundamental question that a lot of presidents are asking is the why. Because I hear throughout the country, what is my legacy? How am I going to leave my institution better than it was? And you answered this question in such an amazing way. So before we start getting into your why, at what point did you say to yourself, I've got to make this college better than how it is now before I leave it? Where did you get to that point? At what point? You're the first person to ask me that question in that way and and frame it in terms of of legacy. Um, I hear my colleagues talk a lot about legacy. It's not something that I've ever fretted over, but I am deeply committed when I got the job to to leaving the college better than I found it. And I think I built a legacy here, but I built it without that being my purpose. And when I hear people talk about what their legacy is going to be, it's misplaced. Your students are going to tell you what they need from you and responding to that need will be your legacy. For me, listening to our students mm-hmm. was transformative. I went into those conversations thinking one thing. I went into the conversations with students thinking that their success rates were because 
we weren't academic enough. I went into it as a recovering faculty member and an academic at heart, waiting for students to identify all the new academic interventions we needed. We needed more tutoring, which we did, or active learning, or um, engaged pedagogy, or experiential learning. I, I went in thinking that students were going to give me those answers because First they were. Of all, they they don't know what pedagogy is because I just learned it about five years ago. So they don't know what any of the words are, right? <laughs> right. And and so I went, but I went in thinking students were were going to lead me to all to the academic trough of initiative. Right. 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 And. That's a place that I was comfortable because I'm a, I'm an academician. I mean, I'm a, a, a faculty member and by training. But when I sit and listen to them and ask them, I showed them our data. I showed students our success data. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was embarrassing. I showed them our completion data. And I said, tell me why students are not successful at this college. So it's interesting that you say that because I always have found it fascinating Colleges do a great deal of research to figure out how did, what are the reasons that we're not retaining our students, right? What are the reasons that our students aren't being successful? And the, and I want you to dig into some of those reasons because it's going to be very familiar to our listeners because some of the things that we have found are, you know, transportation, childcare, all the things that you learned, yeah. right? The difference is what you did with that information. So I'm going to ask you a question because everybody else says, how did you build this poverty initiative? We yeah. all know how because you've talked about it. But tell me why you did it. Why? Because my students told me that was what was keeping them from being successful. And what was looked, in that? What were they saying? So when we looked at the success, uh, the success data, like for math in particular, I really thought students were going to say, well, my high school didn't prepare me as well, and I'm afraid of math. Those things came up. But what, would, what repeatedly came up was... We rely on the city transportation to get to school and it's late. And the math faculty give us a quiz on the, the beginning of every class to make sure that we're on time and we can't be there on time. Or I can't come to the tutoring center uh, because the, the woman that keeps the kids on my floor of the apartment that I live in has to go to work at four o'clock. So, wow, like in, in listening to students explain why they weren't being successful, their first go-to responses didn't have anything to do with college. It had everything to do with life. So and, it's, and oh. we went in, we always go in looking for the college answers. And we, we think that students leave their life at the door when they walk on our campuses. And I think what the, my why, it was that students help me understand that their life is something we have to integrate into, not ignore. Mm. So their life is something that AC has to integrate into. Yeah. And I think that really sticks to me because I think about the work that you have gone through to kind of dig into who are the people that you're serving. And yeah. one of the, my favorite stories, I remember when I first met you, I think, what, what are we going on now? Like four or five years? Yeah. You know, the first thing that um, one of your colleagues shared with me was, you know, he was a homeless person for a while. I was like, what are you talking about? 
And so I remember asking you, this homeless simulation, help me understand what the heck happened. So before I dig into all the questions that I asked you already before when I was so fascinated with this, first, talk to me about why you did this homeless simulation. I don't talk about this a lot and I want to explain why um, and why I get so emotional talking about it. I don't talk about it a lot because it was three days. It was just a simulation and I knew at any point I could tap out. And I have students that don't get to tap out that homelessness isn't a simulation, it's real life. And I don't want to dishonor the, the war zone that they're living in. Right. Um, but I learned so much from it. And, I, and the reason that I engaged in it, Tramika, is we had been working on uh, removing life barriers. We knew that poverty was a big issue for our students, but we, we got a new data set and it was from Sarah Goldick Robin, the Hope Center, that told me that I had 15% of my 10,000 students were homeless. Wow. And I'm like... Everything we do at the college is about scale. If we can't scale it for 15 to 20% of our students, we don't engage in it. And here I'm going, oh my God, we have this whole poverty initiative to, to connect them to resources. But when you have 1,500 of your students that are experiencing homelessness in the course of a year, I had to understand that. I grew up in some semblance of poverty. So I thought I had a baseline understanding of what my students living in the war zone of poverty went through. And I gone through training with Donna Beagle for that and built systems around poverty. But I had never truly understood or experienced homelessness. And to have 15% of your student body experience something, I, I knew that I needed to understand it in a different way. But I couldn't, I couldn't build responses to it if I didn't understand it. Right. And one thing that you shared with me, and I hope you don't, you don't mind, but I mean, it's called deep dives. One of the things that you shared with me is that you didn't want to do it. It took you a long time. I, I avoided doing it for a full year. Like, Why? because I knew how painful it was going to be. I knew that it was going to be painfully transformative. And I, it's like we had we had just gone through the most painful experience in my professional life and in a budget cut that we weren't prepared that we didn't know was coming uh, from the state and uh, eliminated twelve percent of our employee base and it was really painful and I'm like I was whining like I I've already been through so much pain I don't need to invite more pain you know it's completely <laughs> selfish but and and. But I avoided it. Uh, my friend Elio Moreno uh, locally is the one who who takes teams on the simulation, and she told me a year before I went that I needed to go, and I knew I needed to go, Tramika. Right, right. I didn't want to go. Right. And and <laughs> she honestly she tricked me into it. She called me because we had been working on some projects together, and she called me. And she's like, "What are you doing?" on this weekend. And I thought we were mapping out like a shared consulting gig. And I'm like, I'm free on this weekend. She's like, great. I hate when people do that. <laughs> she, but, but she knew, she knew. And she's the kind of friend that... Um, we got you. Knew. She knew I needed to do it. I told her I needed to do it. 
But I found every excuse not to do it when she called. So she found another workaround. And so I knew I needed to go. And then I signed up and I dreaded it, Tramika. And we we were driving down and I was like, oh my God, I don't want to do this because I knew how painful it was going to be. And did you tell anybody that, any of your colleagues that you worked with, anybody that worked for you, did you let them know you were doing this or anything like no, that? No, I, I didn't. Huh. Because it wasn't it wasn't something to do for show or for marketing or branding. It was really personal. Yeah. Uh, and and I didn't I I didn't do it to get attention for it. Honestly. So let's walk this narrative out because we have other stages into this journey as to the why this initiative is so important to you. So we have. This data, you, you started as president. These students are telling you something is wrong. My, I can't get yeah. to the tutoring centers because I don't have childcare. My math professors are given tests early in the morning. So you're seeing resemblance of things that are just happening. They're like, these are simple fixes. What's happening within my system that yeah. we aren't seeing these problems? And then you come to the point where you're saying, I've already had a massive, I've had a massive restructure that's taken a toll on me professionally, but I know I have to go back to what my students are saying. And I'm painting this story because I'm going to transition us to the next phase. And you say, you know, I'm going to actually go and say, I want to go through the simulation of homelessness. Yeah. And so tell me what you've learned, because what really makes me excited about this story is how much you were on fire when you came back. So I want people to hear what is it that lit your fire in those days? That you were there those three days. How easily people that are living in homelessness are ignored and are treated as subhuman, and the injustice of it and the ugliness of it from the very institutions that we would think would be a part in the front lines of solving it, like churches, like nonprofits. There were churches that walked, there were pastors. That walked right by you. Am I? Do I remember correctly? There were pastors that walked by us. Where the simulation was, there was the the one of the things that we had to do involved us walking by multiple churches to get where we thought a food pantry was going to be open. And it's hot. We're thirsty. We're like, we'll get some water from the church that we were walking by. They had removed the spigots from the water fountain because they didn't want people getting something they didn't deserve. Ugh. Like it was that kind of injustice. It was being invisible, being prejudged, hmm. being ignored. Did you get to a point, Russell, where even you wanted to be invisible? Well, the beginning, I wanted to be invisible. Like, I was ashamed, and that wasn't something I was prepared for. Um, I mean, I've been through counseling. I've been through adult child of alcoholic. I've, I've gone through my counseling journey where shame is something that, that I thought I had worked through. But immediately, when, when you got to the simulation, and we've never talked about this, so uh, forgive me for diving even deeper than you probably wanted me to. I want you to. When, when we got there, we check in and they immediately take everything from you, everything. And, and then the, the team, I was with a team of, there were four of us and we all had to draw straws. 
the three people with the longest straws got to pick three things that they brought with them to keep. And the person with the shortest straw didn't get to keep anything. So you have, well, I've got to have my glasses. I got to have medication. I mean, you got to choose, right? And and the first thing that I did is I drew a long straw and I was, and and then the, my friend drew the short straw. She didn't keep anything. So immediately you're, you're confronted with loss, immediately confronted with loss and panic. Like, what the hell am I going to do without my phone? Right. You don't get to keep your phone. You don't get to keep the clothes on your back. What? You don't get to keep anything. So... The first response, when I realized I got to keep three things, I felt I was so lucky that my friend Karen, who got the short straw, and I was like, how can I be doing this? So we just became a collective, right? So for the collective, we each got a certain amount of money for the weekend. But Karen, because she had the short straw, didn't get any money. So we decided we were going to be collective. We each gave up one of our three things so that Karen could have two things, right? So we, we pooled our money. And the first thing you do is you go to this Goodwill store and you have to buy your clothes. With the money they gave you for the weekend? Yes. You have to buy some clothes. And you go in and you get shoes and pants and shirt. I chose to keep my underwear was one of my two things. (laughs) Smart man. Smart man. (laughs) Um, You have 15 minutes to do it. And... When you walk out, you have to pay and they want you to write a thank you note to the people that donated. And this was the moment, Tramika, that was a gut punch for me. A gut punch. Because we're walking out and I'm like, I wrote my thank you notes and I'm like, was supposed to be paying for my team. And I, they were distracted and I walked out of that place and got in the, the vehicle that had dropped us off without paying. So within the first hour of this simulation, I became a thief. I mean, this is so part, like unbelievably. And, like- and you think, but in, in my mind, I'm going, I have finite amount of money. I don't know what I'm going to need. I don't know what crisis I'm going to have. and. And if I can get by without having to pay assholes money for for donated clothes, I'm not gonna because I need this money more than they do. That was in the first hour of the simulation. But what you're describing is a fundamental systemic misunderstanding of poverty. Yes. Understanding that people don't wake up in the morning thinking about what to steal. They are hungry and they have babies to feed and they have somehow a way to keep them warm or cool or not thirsty. Yeah. You've just described it. And, and we talk about a lot the different phases of how the brain works. And you literally have been in a very short period of time with the drawing of the straws, been put to a survival carnal state. Yes. Within an hour, I was in right. survival mode. Right. And ethics and rules and laws. Those are things that people that. money. That's F what that. talk about. That's, that's for privileged people. Right. An hour in, I'm already in a mindset of survival. I'm already in a mindset of survival. An hour in. I've already sacrificed what I thought were values and core character points about my life. I've sacrificed them because I immediately went into survival mode. 
And as we talk about this, and when you think about the concept of homelessness, and you think about the inequities as it pertains to race, as you were going through the simulation, did you find yourself in an environment where homelessness is also divided or also segregated and they see race? Or is homelessness wow. and the homeless almost its own race? You know, Termika, I've, no other person has asked me that question. And we talk a lot about, you and I talk a lot about um, equity and racial and social justice. But I'm going to tell you, in that, in that simulation, I don't think I, I don't remember anybody by their ethnicity. I don't remember the people that wasn't, I can't pull up the video in my head and, and see ethnicity as central to that conversation. And I can know in hindsight that it had to have been. But when I was in the middle of the crisis, you become so focused on your own survival that I don't think you pay attention to that. Attention to that. Well, the reason I asked that question is because you know you shared something earlier in the conversation. The fifteen percent of your ten thousand students were homeless, right? Now, we, you know, people who work in higher education, right? We have our own. You know, this is probably a, a very controversial statement, but when we see people, we see people based on their physical attributes and sometimes yeah. that is the color of their skin, right? Yeah. But if that 15% of those 10,000 students we're talking about walk in hungry, they don't know why someone may have a preconceived notion. They're just hungry. Mm-hmm. They don't know why someone is treating them differently than anybody else because they're just hungry. They're probably, so it's almost just as, as, it just touches me a little and it's a food for thought to think, you know, for me, I'm able to look at someone and say, I might, be, I might not be treated fairly right now because I'm a, I'm a person of color. That is not what they're thinking, but it may be happening to them. Do you see but, what I mean? Yeah, I do. I, I do. I think that our neighbors that are living in the war zone of homelessness I don't even think about their own humanity. I don't even think they think about themselves as whole right. people. I think they they are so much in survival mode and trying to figure out how to understand the system and to leverage it and just to survive. Right. So through the simulation, there were so many things that I learned. Like initially it was shame. Like I didn't want people to see me. I remember crossing the street because there was this family with two strollers and kids. And I was like, oh my God, I can't look people in the eye. And then I realized on day two, I didn't have to worry about being seen because ain't nobody seeing you if you're ain't homeless. Nobody seeing you. It is like you're invisible. You're a ghost. They could bump into you and then pretend like they didn't bump into you. Mm. It's active ignorance. It's actively ignoring what's in front of you. I saw that so much that by the third day, it pissed me off and I started yelling at people. And, and it, it actively, actively 15% of students were not getting what they needed because they were living in this space. And it's interesting because yeah. you finished this simulation after three days and you, you already had an organ. So it's always funny when people say, you know, this thing that Amarillo College created, you know, Russell created this thing called the ARC. And let's be honest, it already existed. It did. 
it existed before. We yep. we knew poverty was an issue. We knew poverty was an issue, and so we we got a grant. We hired a social worker that worked in advising, and it was in advising, but it wasn't scaled for impact. And what I want you to do is talk about. So you come back and you're on fire, right? It wasn't yeah. scaled for impact. How did you get Arc shaking and baking? Because I mean, it's a new thing now. So. I think it's an important part of the story that we've never really talked about is we we developed the advocacy and resource center. I mean, our poverty initiative. We developed our poverty initiative. Okay. We had a social worker. We had it integrated into the early alert, but we didn't have an arc. We had a poverty initiative and we're trying to do work. And there's lots of things that schools have. Well, what's the difference? So you so you listed for people who are 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 very checkbox tactical thinkers, yeah. you just listed everything that these schools say, oh, we have that, oh, we have that, oh, we have that. But I need you to tell us what the difference is. So the difference is between what I call checkbox leadership and transformational leadership is when you take what you have in your checkbox. And you scale it for impact and make sure it's effective. Mm. And when I came, what, what I what I understood when I came back from the homeless simulation, and we started, I, I immediately took the poverty initiative that was in the advising center, and I moved it into the the report to the president's office to send a powerful message that this is a college wide initiative, not an advising issue. And I placed it in the Ware Student Commons that was the heart of the campus in an all glass exposed building, the most visible space on campus. And we gave it a name, the Advocacy and Resource Center. We made the social worker who was an advisor, a full-time social worker, got a grant to add another social worker and immediately started scaling this for impact. And one of the things that I don't think you talk about enough is you completely turned the stigma on its yeah. head. It is yeah. not, I mean, people walk into this place like, hey, y'all, what's up? I'm coming to make sure I get my skirt. I've got an interview tomorrow. I'm trying to make sure I'm looking good. I remember I've gone through a couple of times um, and I know that Paige, as much as she's gone on campus, you, it is a, it's a happening place and it's not yeah. a place people are ashamed to go to. No. And I'm so impressed by that. Well, it, it, was, it was really important and intentional because before it was hidden in the corner of the advising center it didn't even have it wasn't even in our organizational chart the wow. poverty initiative we had a food pantry that was literally in a closet on one of the buildings on the outskirts of our campus and by pulling it into the center of the college in a glass enclosed we were telling honestly i did it to tell our college employees, hey, it's that important. Mm -hmm. What I was not prepared for is how important that would be for our students. And, and I talk a lot to our students. And one of the things that our students told me that, that I'll never forget is like, we knew we were poor. We didn't think you knew we were poor. Mm. And by putting this in the middle of the college and in glass office, we told the college and the students 
This is normal. This isn't something you hide from. This isn't something to be ashamed of. This is just what we do. If you come to Amarillo College, you're going to probably see a social worker. It's just a part of our normal experience. It's now a part of our orientation. It's a part of our first year experience. It's foundational to the culture of caring. Um, Is seeing your students for who they are, not who you wish they were or who, who they used to be but for who they are. And our students were living in the war zone of poverty. And I came back realizing from this simulation that this thing had to be, it had to come under different leadership. It had to come under my leadership, not a divisional leadership, because this was a college-wide issue, not an advising issue. And I'd like to, you know, I've spoken to many presidents along the way as we are going, and we're all fighting this battle of what is changing every single day as we go through this pandemic. And you and I, we exchange text messages or calls just to, you know, or TikToks just to keep things as pleasant as we possibly can through this crazy time. One of the things I like, and and I love you for a million reasons, but one of the things that I like about you is you put your time where your vision is and where, like you said, it is in the center of the college and this is where ARC is. You decided you were going to work that front desk and you were going to do the triage. So first of all, kudos. And I just, I think you are just a phenomenal person anyway, but this is a pretty rad thing to say, I'm getting ready to do this every day so that I can make it happen. But tell me what, why did you do that? Why, why did you decide to do it? Well, there were a couple of reasons. When the governor issued a stay at home order or a shelter in place order, it was really important for me that we never use the words Amarillo College is closed. When you're facing a crisis, I couldn't stomach the idea that we would close to a crisis. And one of the reasons I couldn't stomach the idea that we would close is because we know so many of our students are living in the war zone of poverty. And in that war zone, access to technology is a huge challenge. Even if they have a phone, and most of our people living in the war zone of poverty have a a smartphone of some kind. That's how they're doing their schoolwork. Right. That's crazy. It's not going to, it's not functional long-term. I knew we had to keep a building open so that our students had access to that technology. And that was our Wear Student Commons. And so I'm like, we're keeping the Wear open. And we're and in the where is the underground, which is our big computer center. Mm-hmm. And we knew that we had to ask the questions when people come in. You know, are you how do you feel? Do you have fever? Have you traveled? Have you come in contact with? We were taking their temperature. We knew the protocol that was going to be put in place. And I was like, we didn't know a lot about COVID at that point. It was really scary at that point. We thought you could get COVID if you touched a table that someone had touched for 10 seconds, right? Right. We didn't know how transferable it was. We thought it was entirely transferable on inanimate objects at a greater rate than we now know that it is. But at that time, there there was a lot of fear of, of this thing that we didn't know. And I'm like, if I'm going to tell the college, this place has to stay open. Right. And I'm going to ask people to volunteer, and I think there were three in the beginning, how could I ask other people to put themselves on the front lines in a potential risky situation if I couldn't do it myself? 
If I couldn't do it myself, I couldn't ask anybody else to do it. But I'm going to be true. If we're going to deep dive, Tramika, I, I was so naive about it. I thought, well, I moved my desk over. I, I shut the College Union building where my office is. We, you know, it closed down. I moved my desk over there. I took my, my books and my family photos and my chair <laughs> and an external hard drive thinking I was going to get some reading done and get some writing done and answer all my emails because I really thought I was going to be bored. <laughs> so bored that I, I didn't schedule lunch breaks. I'm like, I'll just, I can go get lunch. I thought I would be able to go get lunch because there's just what, I didn't think that we would have a lot of activity. So tell um, me about the activity. How, what was the activity? I was there at that circle desk five days a week eight to five, sometimes later. For how long? Um, for, for three and a half months, nine hours a day. And for most of it, I didn't sit down. It was so active. There were so many people. And what it started out as connecting to technology is not what it ended as. It, it really ended as the heartbeat of serving our students. So it started with technology and ended with technology, advising, tutoring, financial aid, food, career center, library, food pantry, baby supplies, handing out the science lab kits for the for uh, the labs that were being done at home. It became the place where we were handing out refund checks and handing out transcripts and advising students and helping them fill out the FAFSA. It became everything. It became the epicenter of activity. Because what we learned is even in a COVID world where everything could be done online, not everyone can do it online. Right, right. So I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to be hard, right? So you are very, very proud of what you have built in the Advocacy and Resource Center. Mm -hmm. But now that you've worked that front desk. You worked circle desk in the Ware building where you refer people to multiple places, specifically the ARC. What would you do differently now? What changes are you going to make? Ooh. So when I became president, one of my goals was to simplify our processes. And we went through a whole thing where we simplified our processes. At the same time, we were launching our culture of caring and really asking our employees to be intentional about how we treated our students and how we treated each other. And so we, we simplified our processes and we learned how to be nice to each other and our students. And we talk about this a lot, don't we? About, yeah. Yes, sweetie. So I really thought that we had done the work and sitting at the circle desk I, I learned so many things, Tramika, but the big thing that I learned that will have impact on the college is where I thought we had simplified our processes, we really hadn't. The bureaucracy is still so bureaucratic and chokes the will to live out of our first-gen students. What we had done rather than kill the bureaucracy is we had just gotten exceptionally good at loving students through it. So we had become really good at helping students manage the bureaucracy mm -hmm. and doing it with them or doing it for them 
but we really hadn't simplified our processes. Right. And that's going to have to be something that we do over the next year and a half. And thank you for being comfortable saying that. I mean, you have worked so hard. You and your team have worked so hard in building um, this model that you've been nationally recognized. You are a top 10 Aspen Award winner, finalist. So having to have that real conversation with yourself of saying, okay, I'm pretty proud of what I've done, but we still got some work to do. It sometimes is a little vulnerable. So thank you for for being able to, to share that. There's one part that I want to talk to you about that I've always loved about you because you, you know, if you want to make a change, you're going to dig in and you're going to find out this information for yourself. And I love what you do with your secret shoppers. I love what you do with your secret shoppers too. Thank you. Thank you very much. But what I really like is you went straight to the mouths of your students. You were like, listen, let me have it. Lay it on me. So talk to me a little bit about number one, what motivated you to do it? And then number two, what were some of your key takeaways of how do you even turn around and start deploying your staff to fix some of this stuff? <laughs> so it's really interesting. When, when I became president, the college was a very different place than it is six years later. And it was wrapped with turf wars and silos and divisions that saw themselves as needing to police each other, not work with each other. And no one was listening to each other. Right. It became, you know, like if if the business office wants something and we give it to them, they're going to take everything. So we we fight doing any change because it would lead to more change. And I knew we needed to change our onboarding process. I knew we needed to change the way we connected to students. But I wasn't sure what the change was. But what I was sure is I could talk to my colleagues till I was blue in the face. And it wasn't going to have any impact. No one's going to listen to me. But because we work in a college and educate students, we do listen to students. And right. so I really, I did it initially out of self-preservation that I thought I could get the students to say Everything what I right. wanted done, right? <laughs> and that people would listen to the students, but it would be really doing what I wanted done. <laughs> right. But then I got into, I identified the first cohort of secret shoppers. I gave them, I paid them the first two years out of my own pocket because I didn't want any paper trail where anyone at the college could identify the students that I was talking to. Mm-hmm. And my favorite secret shopper story in the beginning, because I, we had a general assembly and I'm like, I have secret shoppers and here's some things I've already learned. Like, we thought we had simplified our onboarding process with a brochure that said, these are the, the three things that you need to do to get enrolled. And it really was 12 steps before you could ever talk to a person. My secret <laughs> shoppers identified that straight up right from the very beginning. It was like, oh crap, I thought, we, I thought we had changed our 12 steps to three. That was a part of our simplification. And they're like, yeah, step number three says... You got to get a viral meningitis, and it, cite, it cited the state law that required it and made it all. And students were like, "What the hell?" I, they didn't know what viral meningitis was, but one one tearily shared that it almost kept her from being able to come to school because her mom saw viral meningitis that you had to get a vaccination, which involves healthcare and money and access. But the mom was like, 
scared as many first gen families are of losing their kids to college anyway. Like if they get educated, they're they're not going to come back home. We're going right, to right. scared of that. But then she didn't know she also had to be scared that college would make her her daughter sick. I mean, it was just so our communication was so wrapped in our own vernacular and bureaucracy that we were ignoring what it was saying to our students and their families. That all was exposed through secret shoppers. So I talked about secret shoppers and I used that example. So a month later, someone in our call center texted me and was like, I just got a secret shopper and described the situation and how how she had solved it. And girl, it wasn't no secret shopper. <laughs> it was you scared the hell out of them. <laughs> but it, but what it did by by having people not know who the secret shoppers were is we started thinking any student was a secret shopper and we started paying attention to how we served them. And that alone had a big cultural impact. And so the first year I used I I, I used a lot of secret shoppers to go through our onboarding. The second year, I used it to understand our first year experience course. The third year, I looked at it to kind of explain, help me understand our financial aid and advising system. This last year, I I used some secret shoppers that were getting ready to graduate to give me reflections on the whole completion experience. That's what I thought it was going to end up focusing on. But it it really, what I learned from them was really focused on the transition to what's next. Not just transfer, because some of them were transferring, but some of them were technical students that were going into the workplace. And they had felt so loved at our college that they were scared to leave it because they didn't think they were going to find that same love at their transfer wow. institution or their workplace. So now we got we to help our employee, our employers, and our transfer partners in that transition. So to sum up this conversation, and I kind of, I always love having these deep dive conversations with um, people that I call those titans in higher education, but um, I'd like to sum up what kind of my thoughts are, right? So what I'm hearing from you is you're listening to your students, but you're listening to them to measure, are we doing these things right? Um, What's going on? What's wrong? What's right? What's working well? But you also you walk in the paths of the lives of the people you are trying to serve to understand mm-hmm. them and to yeah. literally live in their shoes before you come up with a policy or a process or an initiative. Like you took a minute to walk in their shoes, to genuinely simulate yeah. their lives. And because if we don't do that, Tramika, we end up writing policies for ourselves. Right, right, right. You're exactly and, right. And higher ed is drowning in bureaucracy that we built to either simplify our lives or to build a bureaucracy that protects my job. Yep. But rarely is the bureaucracy designed for the people that we're here to, to love. Right. And the last one I hear is that you, you worked it, right? You worked it to support your Amarillo family, right? To make sure mm-hmm. that as you are working the WEAR Center, you are providing that support. to If you weren't asking anybody to do something, you weren't willing to do yourself. Yeah. But you were also supporting students to measure, are what my secret shoppers saying correct? Am I truly living what I'm traveling the country, telling everybody in the world that I'm doing? Am I living it? And and I have to give you unbelievable amounts of kudos because 
you know, I want to end with this one question for you. I have, as, as SWIM continues to grow, um, we have presidents that say, you know, what is my legacy? What, what, or as I'm building my legacy, I want it to be this. What advice would you give if, because you know, presidents, y'all aren't going to ask each other those questions, right? Y'all are only going to ask the consultant, which I'm by law <laughs> required never to tell you who it is. So if you're sitting here having a drink with one of your colleagues and they say to you, you know, hey, Russell, I've got to get it together. I've got to build what my legacy is. What am I leaving this college with in five years from now? What am I leaving this college with? What advice would you give them? Um, it's the right question with the wrong lens. We should be worrying about how we're going to leave the college better, but it's really not driven by how that defines my legacy or my reputation. It's really driven, your reputation and your legacy will be defined by how you learn from your students and your community what they need from you and then rebuild your college for that. Mm. And, And so our transformations you know, we've gotten a lot of attention for the work that we've done, and I'm proud of this college, and we deserve to be an Aspen Top 10 school. And I think we, we can give hope to other schools that transformation can happen quickly, that it's not a 10 to 15-year process. It can be a three-year process. But our transformation doesn't have to be someone else's transformation because their community and their students may need something different from us. So it's not about a lift in place. The thing about the Amarillo College story that should be lifted and placed is the process of how we identified what our students needed from us. Not the what we did, but the why we did it. It's the why. Get clear on the why. And it's not your why, it's your students' why. Why are they struggling? Why do they need you? Why are they not coming to you? Why are they not finishing with you? Those whys, the answers to those whys will determine your transformational journey. And then you got to have the courage to look higher ed in the eye and flip at the bird and say, we're going to do it differently. I love you so much, Russell Lowry Hart. I wish I could talk to you forever and ever and ever, but I'm going to save that for season two. How about that? Sounds great. Thank you so much for having this time with me. And thank you so much. I'm positive that we will be speaking again. And I'm sure that we will get plenty of questions on this episode. So I can't thank you enough for your time. Well, thank you. Really interesting conversation and questions that I hadn't been asked before. But I would be remiss if I didn't thank you for your own powerful role in our journey. And for you and SWIM, you're a part of the AC family. And I thank you for for the tough love that you've given us because we've needed it. Thank you so much. Well, that is a wrap for this episode. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And listen, I hope you enjoyed this season as much as I enjoyed making it. You can find all of season one episodes at www.deepdivestv.com or you can subscribe through your favorite podcast subscription service. And one more thing, We have exciting things in store for season two. We're switching it up a little bit and I know you're gonna like it. So until next time, 
Thank you for listening. And please, please, please stay healthy.